0: Guy. Thank you, Dan. Good morning, friends. How's it going? It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, I'll, I'll start with a little bit of a confession. I feel like I'm really loud, um, which is me. I'm just loud by nature. Uh, my confession is I'm a little jittery. I have ADD. So, so far this morning, I've had a cup of coffee, a cold brew, and I'm almost down with this Red Bull. So buckle up. Could get, could get weird, weird. Uh, um, or, or it could be fine. Right. We'll see what happens. That, <laughs> that cold, cold brew, by the way, if, you've had, if you have not had it, oh my gosh, delicious. delicious. Like life-changing I'm cold brew sure. back there. Yes. So hit that yeah. up for sure. Um, okay, okay, before we get into the message, um, something to, to just kind of share. We, we've been through, I don't know, like heavy weeks, right? It feels like all of us have been through a lot, personally as well as collectively I've, t- I've talked to people at work outside of work it just feels like all of us in this moment in time in history are feeling the weight of life in maybe an abnormal or difficult way and so this morning if you don't listen to me that's fine you can tune out that's totally cool but hear this you are in a place where you are loved immensely And not only that, but you are loved by a creator God who formed you and knit you and placed his spirit in you. The scripture tells us that inside of each one of us is the imagio di, the vision, the image of God, the breath of God lives inside of you. So if you've had a difficult week, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with depression, it is okay to be in those moments. But know that you are loved and that you are valuable and your life is worthwhile. And hopefully this week you can spread that message to others as well and spread that compassion to others as well. Um, Okay, so uh, if I haven't met you, by the way, my name is Jake. I'm just a guy. I'm not a pastor at CV or anything like that. So if you get mad at things I say, that's okay. Uh, My role is not to... Uh, convince anyone of anything my role is not to give you an eloquent speech that causes an emotional reaction that you say that was a really great speech and you walk out this door feeling empowered by that speech my role i feel is really just to invite you into a conversation and i hope that that's what we can have this morning as a church we've been going through one of the most exciting passages in scripture, the genealogy of Jesus, <laughs> it is an accounting of whom is in the bloodline, whom is in the, the lineage of Jesus. And we've been taking the opportunity to view the lens of the story of God, to view the story of God through the lens of these individual characters in the lineage of Jesus. And we've had some, some really interesting conversations, we've had some interesting lessons that we've learned through this process. And today I, I get the, um, the challenge of speaking about David and specifically about this tension that exists in the story of David. David, as is, is many of us know, is this great king in the history of the Israelite nation, became someone that the Israelite nation really rallied around. The kingdom was enlarged and expanded under his reign became an example of a great godly king. Scriptures would refer to him as a man after God's own heart. He penned half of the psalms. So if you ever read through the scripture and read those great poems, those great expressions of authentic faith, those come from this king, this man named David. This man, when he was a boy, there's a story, a lore of him defeating a giant and uh, beheading the giant and having this great military victory which propelled him into leadership he's a, a kind of a rags to riches story right a guy who started as nothing was often discounted discredited and then all of a sudden was propelled into this leadership position and that is an amazing story but there's also this detention tension in this story because as david is this man after god's heart as the scriptures would say as the chroniclers would say as the scribes would say, scribes would say about him. David is also a man with deep flaws. David is a man who um, kind of perpetuated the rules of empires of his day, who, when he took power on the throne of the Israelite nation, sought to expand and enlarge in the kingdom because he was afraid that if we're too small, if we're too isolated, the next threat will come and destroy us. And so David took it upon as one of his agenda items, one of his platform items, that we will be a nation of great military might. Under the rule of King David, the military of Israel expanded one bajillion times. I don't know if that's accurate, but it definitely expanded and enlarged. David was a believer in power. David's kingdom expanded through what I would call like a, a Vikingistic, I think I just made up that word, approach to growing kingdoms. They would seek to expand their kingdom to the west, expand the kingdom to the east, expand the kingdom to the, east, the, kingdom to the north. And the way they would do that is they would send the army to um, kill the men of the neighboring countries, and then they would take the citizens of that country and they would force them to make bricks to expand the kingdom. Now, this is really interesting because if if you notice the job that David ascribes to his captors is to make them work making bricks in the brick kiln, which is what the Israelites were doing in Egypt when they were slaves and when they were oppressed. It is what they had fleed from that they are now perpetuating so there's a tension in this story also David raped Bathsheba so there's also that And there's a story that takes place that talks about and we'll get to it here in a second David using his power protecting his power being afraid of losing that power And using that might to hide his sins and his wrongdoings. The reason I'm telling you all of this up front is because when we say we're going to talk about David in a 30-minute lesson, we can't cover all that. So we're going to focus on a few concepts of the story that I hope we can latch on to. And then we'll talk about what that means for us today. So today we're gonna talk about four things. We're gonna talk about bricks and systems. We're gonna talk about uh, primal cries. We're gonna talk about that rooftop problem. Then we're gonna talk about the way things are. We're gonna end by talking about a word called ruach. So bricks and systems. We talked about the the Israelites living under this Egyptian regime where they were enforced against their will, they were enslaved against their will to spend their days making bricks. The kingdom grew up on the backs of weak people groups. The kingdom, Pharaoh, enlarged his power, emboldened his power, made himself mightier because he could take advantage of people who were weaker, who did not have power, who did not have privilege. Egypt was a place in history. Egypt is also a metaphor. And I think we all understand that Egypt teaches us how easy it is for human nature to bend toward oppressing people who are weaker than us for the gain and the advantage of our security or our power or our protection. Egypt is a history lesson, but Egypt is also a lens to understand the world in which we live in today, because don't we all look around and see things happening around us at the macro level, at a national and global level and at the micro level in our work, in our families, in our social groups and see things where it is clear that people are taking advantage of other people. In order to extend their image or to extend their reputation. And many of us have gotten caught up in those systems, in those experiences, in those moments. To be uh, an early Israelite, to be an ancient uh, person of the tribe of God, was to deeply understand what it means to be on the other side of the system to deal with the fallout of powerful men with powerful ideas who wanted nothing more than their own power. That brings us to this concept of primal cries. There's a word in, uh, in Hebrew called say, sayak. I think I'm saying that right. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So Google told me how to say that in all transparency. Sayak is this word that you could loosely translate as, as cry, but in ancient languages, you have to understand that, that you don't just define a word as an expression. Now, oftentimes words in ancient Eastern cultures were defined more by um, expressions or feelings or emotions. So this word Sayak, the the JPS Torah Commentary, I keep wanting to call it GPS Torah Commentary, it's not that, uh, writes this about the word. Sayak is one of the most powerful words in the Hebrew language, pervaded by moral outrage and soul-stirring passion. It denotes the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the helpless victim. Sayak is an expression of pain, but it's also a question. It's a feeling that something has been wronged, but it's also a question that goes out into the air. Doesn't anyone else see this? Doesn't anyone else think that this is wrong? You see this word in a lot of places in the Old Testament. The first place that this word uh, is found is in the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain kills his brother Abel, there's a phrase in Genesis that says, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. That word cried out from the ground is Syak is That's used in that phrase. It's an expression that says something deeply wrong and unjustful has been created here or has been done here. Something that is not right. Something has gone afoot and amiss. The next place you start seeing this word is in the book of Exodus. So remember when we talked about the the early Israelites and their their time in oppression and enslavement under the Egyptian empire. This is a a monumental story in the framework of um, understanding Jesus throughout the thousands of years after this event took place. So as the Israelites were in bondage under Egypt, You begin to see these little phrases peppered throughout the book of Exodus before they flee the empire. You begin to see these phrases where the writer takes great pain to say, God heard the cries of the oppressed. God looked down and saw and heard their anguish. God heard their pain crying out to him. This is the word Siak in the book of Exodus. And what's fascinating about this in the lens of a story is this is teaching us that God always hears the cry of the oppressed, which is a way of saying that God is on the side of the oppressed. Now this is important because in ancient Eastern culture, under the reign of an Egyptian Pharaoh, It would have been assumed, implied, and outright said that the Pharaoh is a son of the gods who the gods and the cosmos and the universe is on the side of Pharaoh in Egypt. And he will use that power to continue building the empire because these gods and these cosmos and these forces and these energies are on the side of the powerful and the mighty and the rich and the privileged. But this story says this God is not like that. This God is on the side of the afflicted, on the side of the forgotten, on the the side of the oppressed. Doesn't it sometimes feel like we've lost the plot to that story? We live in a society where we believe that our mission as Christians is to, remember don't get mad at me, force other people to live the way that we think they should live. To force others to believe in what we think is right and accurate. Isn't that a way of using our power to make us more powerful? It feels like we've lost the plot, but we'll get back to that here in a second. The 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 lesson that comes through, and I'm glad that Kevin put this slide up, because I always forget my points, and it's very helpful when I see that,
1: is that this God hears
0: the suffering of people, but he doesn't just hear it, he acts upon it. He cares about the suffering of people. And beyond that, he cares about the systems that create and perpetuate that suffering. We often don't talk, I think is probably abnormal, because CB does talk a, a, a lot about this, but oftentimes in our churches, we don't talk a lot about systems. We talk a lot about individual control, individual beliefs, individual actions. The scripture, faith, is a collective story it is a story grounded in the systems of the day the story of egypt is a story of god overthrowing not a powerful ruler overthrowing a system of oppression and setting his people free i believe that as followers of the way as followers of jesus often what we should be doing is loving the oppressed but also waging war against the oppressive systems finding ways to dismantle those systems and those structures that perpetually keep people in oppression and keep people behind and seek to destroy and kill other people this god doesn't just hear suffering and say "Mm, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with it this god says i hear you that is wrong that is not what I have envisioned for this world. Let's make things right. So this is all in the air when King David comes into power. And this brings us to our rooftop problem because King David starts on this uh, kind of like mighty glory filled sort of story. I mean, I feel like if we were to see someone defeat a giant and like come from nowhere and be this amazing warrior, we would probably all vote for him in election most likely because I mean, look at what he did. So he has this like kind of aura about him, this sort of magical presence that continues to propel him forward as he builds this kingdom. And things are going pretty well. The, The plan is working. The empire is expanding, the kingdom is expanding, and things are, are going right. David is still looked at by the people as a righteous leader, as someone who really follows God and does what God wants him to do. And we are following the will of God by following King David. And then we get to this story where David sends his army out to go conquer another land, and he stays behind. Now, this is a, story, or is a part of the story that you can miss when you just kind of read through that. That action itself is atypical for the time in the era. The time that this event takes place is a certain time of the year, I don't know, maybe it was like the NFL football season or something, when kings went out to war. The scriptures say, the time come when kings went out to war. So kings would lead their armies into battle and David always did that but in this story particularly he says back he's built power he's built privilege and he's using that power and privilege to stay safe and in this moment when he says back he's walking across his rooftop thinking about how awesome things are I don't know if that's what he's thinking he doesn't say but we could assume when he looks and sees um, Bathsheba washing herself in her house. Now there there's a lot. I've read a lot of things this week about this story and there's a lot of like I don't know, a lot of mental hoops to jump through, I guess. Uh, there is a school of thought that this was adultery, right? That David and Bathsheba conspired together consensually to have this relationship and then Bathsheba became pregnant. And David wanted to deal with that and tried to do all these things to kind of cover that up, um, which didn't work. But That's not actually what happened. And I think that we should be honest and authentic about this. David is a, a king. Subjects do not refuse the orders of kings. Bathsheba in this story had no consent. She had no voice. She could not say no. Beyond that, beyond the power dynamics at play, in order to invite Bathsheba, if you were to say that, to his place, he sent several of his guards. This is a capturing of an individual against their will at the whims of a powerful man. This is a very difficult story to deal with. So the event takes place, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David realizes that this is an issue, not for Bathsheba, not for the child, not for the kingdom, it's an issue for him. He doesn't want people to know what he has done. So he conspires, he tries to get Uriah, which is Bathsheba's husband, drunk he invites him home from war says you're a great warrior let's celebrate tries to get him drunk tries to send him back home so he can celebrate with his wife and then they can be like oh that happened they're pregnant yay Uriah doesn't do that and Uriah says I I can't go back home my men my commanders are at war I will sleep outside the gates and then I will go back to war so David then decides, okay, we'll send you back to war. We'll scheme and we'll have the commander, we'll have your commander place you on the front lines at the most violent junction of the war. And when the violence is at its height, we'll have the forces pull back. So Uriah Uriah will die mightily and heroically in battle. And then as king, I can accept Bathsheba as my wife. And then the pregnancy is no longer an issue. This is a man after God's own heart who has conspired to do horrific things that perpetuate trauma, perpetuate violence and perpetuate an empire of a man instead of the kingdom of God. And the reason I think it's really important to be really authentic about that story is the rest of the story of David is difficult to deal with in that lens i mean it just is let's be honest about that david does mighty things after that david begins organizing and structuring the building of the temple i think probably as a way of making penance to god as a way of saying i have messed up royally no pun intended and so let's build god a house and god says i don't need a house i dwell among my people Similar to what Uriah said. He said, I don't want to go back to my house. I want to be with my people. And you can organize this. I will allow this to happen. I will allow this to take place because it's clear that the people need somewhere to come to see, to feel the presence of God. But you will not enter in, David. And you will not be the one that takes the glory. Son Solomon will take the glory for this, and there are a lot of difficult parts of the story. David has a son with Bathsheba that dies. the The son that um, is a result of that rape dies, and then this new son Solomon comes into the scene. This is the one that God says will take the next kingdom or take the kingdom to the next step in the next iteration. I believe that I don't know a lot of what's happening in this story, but I do think that there's a truth buried in here that there are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to times when people destroy other people. When people look down on other people and take advantage of other people and oppress other people, there is a justice in the consequence of things. There is also hope in the rebuilding of things. The reason why the next section in our talk is the way things are is because isn't that what you would have felt when it came to light? What David done? When you realize that David had perpetuated this act and made this act, doesn't it just always feel like that's, that's what powerful people do? It's the way it's always been. I mean, we, we've lived through this, right? The past five years or six years, all of the headlines about all of the terrible things that people that we look up to or admire have done. At a certain point, we become desensitized to it because we kind of feel deep in our bones, of course, that's what they did. Of course, that's what you do. There's that old adage, don't ever meet your heroes, right? That adage exists for this particular reason. Now, that's the hard part of the talk. Let's not dwell on the bad. Let's, let's look toward the future. There's this other word that I want to talk about for a second, and then we'll close the loop on all of this. And this word is ruach. Ruach is another um, ancient word. The word is translated breath or spirit. The first time we see the word ruach is in Genesis as well, when it says, The Ruach of God, the spirit of God looked out on the darkness of the universe and spoke into the universe. Ruach is the energy, the creative, the divine breath and voice and presence and spirit of God that infuses darkness with light, that infuses death with life that restores and redeems that oozes into the cracks of the broken apart empires and regimes and peoples and forms them and knits them together Ruach is also found in the book of Ezekiel remember that weird story where the prophet Ezekiel has a vision where he looks out on a valley of dry bones and the Ruach of God comes over the bones the bones begin to thistle and stitch together and skin forms and arises up out of the grave a mighty army. This is a metaphor, a story of what's possible when the Ruach of God goes against the oppressive regimes of the day and hears the Syak of the people who are crying out for mercy and for grace and for redemption. The Ruach of God is in us. It is the breath that exists in our souls which brings us to jesus jesus in a lot of ways is the next david in a lot of ways from the lineage of david from this idea of kingship from this idea of messianic prophecy from this idea of the son of god in a lot of ways he is the iteration and the fulfillment of what the people expected and desired from david and in other ways he's the anti-david where David grew the the kingdom of the people through military might and force and power, Jesus says the kingdom of God grows through the laying down of power. What does that look like for us today? What does it look like for us to rebelliously lay down our power So that others can be blessed and benefited so that we can look into broken areas and invite life and invite hope, invite peace, invite redemption and bring a new vision of what's possible for those people. Every story that you read about Jesus is a story of laying down power in order to overcome and dismantle systems jesus also existed inside the context of an oppressive regime he lived inside the roman empire one of the most notoriously violent prolific societies in the history of the world he was a person who directly confronted the powerful systems of his day who looked at the pharisees who were the religious right of his day and said you got the plot wrong this is not about you this is not about you being in power this is not about you being in privilege this is about god bringing forth his vision of redemption into the world why are you using your position to lord over other individuals the story of jesus is a rebellious story of hope of what can be in the midst of what is so this morning what the, the band come up i think did not forget that I wanted to remind myself the whole time. Don't forget the cue. Um, As a way of, of closing this morning, inviting you into the conversation, this is like a hard topic to tie together, neatly into a bow at the end, and say, here's the exact takeaway, and here's what you should do about it. Because this story invites us into difficult and complex spaces. Into spaces that do not have easy answers, that do not have three step processes, that do not have clear cut answers at all times. The story invites us to listen to the SIAC that surrounds us. And I wish that, that the story of the church would be this is a group of people that deeply listens instead of this is a people who haven't listened i feel like a lot of marginalized groups from individuals that i've talked to from things that i've read feel that in light of things that are happening in our culture and in our context the church isn't listening and it makes the church an unsafe place for people to be so i guess maybe my call this morning or my challenge you this morning faith looks like listening first not being the hero of the story so i invite you when you have that visceral reaction to something that you hear in the news or a talking point or some story instead of allowing that visceral reaction to overtake you what if you step back and leaned it's not to listen to the cry of the people rising up. I believe if we do that, the ruach inside us will take care of the rest, that God will give us the vision for what to do with that. We're going to do communion. Kelly, we're going to do communion. The other cue I, I did not want to forget. Um, I'll pass this one over here. We'll go this way. You guys can, can all stand. I gave it to the wrong people. Kelly, I'm always doing the wrong thing. Communion is this really um, interesting, weird celebration that Christians have done for thousands of years. And it stems from this event. It's recorded in the scripture that the night before he was betrayed, the night before he was captured by the Roman army, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he broke bread with them. And in the breaking bread with him, there's another instance of Jesus laying down his power. He says, this is my body that's been broken before you. Take this, eat it in remembrance of me. After they'd broken the bread and after they had um, eaten, he took the cup that they were drinking from and said likewise this is my blood that has been poured out for you drink this in remembrance of me even in communion we find a reminder God's saying the most powerful thing you can do is lay down your power invite the kingdom of God into the broken places and allow his ruach, his spirit to set you free Thank you for listening this morning. We're going to worship a little bit.